Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Bible in Order, where we are chronologically going through the entire Bible in one year. Today's reading for December 5th is 2 Corinthians chapters 5 through 9. It's only fitting that we pick up with the last verse of chapter 4, so we set the proper context. We do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. It's with that in mind that we look forward to our glorified bodies that we will receive someday. We remember we are not made for this world. These physical bodies that we are currently inhabiting are temporary. They're like tents. This is why the Jews celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths to remind themselves that this was a temporary dwelling place. They would come out of their homes and stay in tents, temporary dwellings, and celebrate the goodness of God, that he has a plan, that this physical world is not all there is, it's not all there ever will be. And so in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, if this earthly tent is destroyed, this physical body is taken away, it ceases to function, and my spirit departs from it, that's okay. This is not the end. When we leave these physical bodies, we will go to a building from God, created not with human hands, that dwells in heaven. We have that to look forward to. But in the meantime, we're stuck in these tents, and it's uncomfortable, should be for believers. And we groan. We hope for something better. We are burdened because we know we don't belong here. And God in his sovereignty appointed us to this, and he's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee, so that we know what is to come. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we receive that joy that comes from heaven, it's just a taste of what we have to look forward to in the kingdom of heaven, in his glory forever and ever at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are confident and we know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. And that requires that we walk by faith and not by sight. And we're reminded that we will all face the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer will stand before him while he's seated on his judgment seat and give an account of their goodness or their lack of goodness, and everyone will be rewarded according to what they've done, whether good or bad. And so we try to persuade people to do good. We want everybody to receive beautiful and bountiful rewards on that day. He reminds us in verse 19, it's not about us. Because Christ died for all, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but they should live for the one who gave his life for them and who was raised. The Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, took your penalty, died a horrific, painful, and humiliating death, then was raised to life on the third day. 
and now sits at the right hand of the Father, God of all eternity, past, present, and future, creator of all things. He has eyes like fire, and the word coming out of his mouth is like a sword that divides, that exposes the true intentions of the heart. There's no hiding from him. He gave everything for you, and you'll stand before him someday. What are we going to say when we stand before him and he says, you spent 2,000 hours over the last 15 years scrolling social media. You spent 5,000 hours watching videos on YouTube and Netflix and Disney+, Plus, but you spent almost no time reconciling the world to me. I've given you a ministry of reconciliation. It says in chapter 5, Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Friends, if you're claiming to be a new creation in Christ, then it's time to start acting like it. Verse 18 says, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That word reconciliation or to be reconciled has the connotation of two different meanings at the same time. One, it would be an exchange. It's the exchange of our guilt for Christ's righteousness. We give him our guilt and he gives us his righteousness. The second meaning of that word reconciliation is restoration to a place of favor. We have this great exchange of our guilt for God's righteousness in Christ and at the same pl- at the same time we are moved from a place of being at enmity with God being against him opposed to him to being moved into a place of restoration where God's favor rests upon us once again and as we are reconciled at the same time God's saying now go and tell others about this miraculous thing that has taken place you have entered into the kingdom of heaven now go and invite others therefore we are ambassadors for Christ an ambassador is one who represents the one who sent them there's somebody who is expected to be aware of the feelings of the one they represent and they tell their host country about how their king or president feels. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are to be portraying him, representing him, and sharing with the world around us how he feels about the things that are going on in society. I don't know about you, friends, but this is incredibly convicting for me. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So often this is applied to marriage, but I think it applies to all kinds of relationships and personal life as well as professional life. Our best friends should not be unbelievers. Our closest companions should not be people who act like unbelievers. Let's not compromise our own integrity, our own witness, and our own character by allying ourselves with people who don't have the same commitment to the truth that we have. What agreement does Christ have with the devil? What fellowship does light have with darkness? 
What partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? We are different. Verse 15, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Perhaps we are doing some things wrong in modern day Christianity. Maybe we're not taking it seriously enough. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We worship a holy God. The world worships idols, whether it's their children or themselves or literal pagan idols that they bow down to and burn incense to. Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God? There should be no fellowship between the temple of the Holy Spirit of God and unbelievers who are worshiping other things. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Let us then cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Many Christians today need to cleanse themselves from impurities of the flesh and from spirits. This is how we bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. We need to fear God when we sin. We need to understand that, yes, every sin is forgiven past, present, and future. But if we continue on in sin, maybe we were never, ever really saved at all. Let's judge ourselves with a sober judgment, not in the same way that the world does. The world says, oh, you're a good person because you haven't broken any crimes, or at least not gotten caught for it. The world would say, oh, he's even a good person. He just got in with the wrong people and therefore did some bad things and got arrested. But he's a good person. In God's eyes, apart from the righteousness of Christ, there are no good people. He loves us. He desires good for us. But in our cores, we're all selfish. There should be brokenness over sin. We should all have a story of repentance we should have a lifestyle of repentance. We should all be admitting to ourselves and before others, but most importantly, to God, how wrong we have been and how we need his forgiveness. We need this Jesus to come and to change us and to make us like him. There are different kinds of repentance referenced in Chapter 7, verse 10, there is a godly grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But there's also a worldly grief that produces death. Being sorry that you got caught, sorry that your name's in the paper, sorry that you're going to have to go to court for your mistakes, that embarrassment that comes with being caught in a lie at work or with a spouse that negatively affects your relationship. It changes the way people look at you. There's a sorrow that says, I'm sorry they got caught, but I'm not necessarily sorry that I did it. Or if given the opportunity to do it again and get away with it, I would commit that same sin again. That is a worldly sorrow and it leads to death. But a godly sorrow is a ripped heart that says, God, I don't want to be this way. I don't have the control to do what I know is right. God, help me. It's that humility, that brokenness that God can work with. And he loves that. Chapter eight and nine are about giving. Paul's saying, I talked about your goodness and your generosity and you said you would help us support these other missionary movements. And so now the time has come. 
And I'm so grateful that you guys are people of your word that you saved up and you're ready to give to further the mission. Chapter 8, 14 says, at the present time, your surplus is available for their need. And it's important to note that these people probably were not tithing. They were giving out of their abundance to meet the needs of those in their faith community and to fund the missionary journey of Paul and his companions to go to new areas to make sure that the gospel was going forth into new regions. In the same way that God provided the manna in Exodus chapter 16, God provided your financial resources so that everybody would have what they would need. Nobody would have too little. Nobody would have too much. God gives some of us more than others so that we have the blessing and the privilege of taking what we've been given and redistributing it to the poor. This is not the same as a government-run communism where the government takes everything and everybody gets a stipend. No, this is complete and total freedom where people work and provide for themselves, but some have an excess and they're able to use it to be a blessing to those who don't. Chapter 9 talks about sowing, the analogy of a farmer planting seed and waiting for a harvest is a lot like giving funds to those in need. As we give, it's like planting seeds. It would be a foolish farmer indeed to eat all of the harvest and not save any of it to reinvest, to produce for next year. And in the same way, we should not spend all of our money on our needs. No, we should be reinvesting it just like that seed that is stored through the winter and then planted in the spring. A wise steward in the kingdom of God will take the resources God has produced for them and blessed them with and they'll continually be sowing so that they will always be reaping a harvest as well. And so a challenge for you, friends, if you are not supporting somebody in need, specifically and primarily another believer, you should be doing so. As these Corinthians were supporting Paul in his missionary effort and giving for the other churches and other areas that Paul was going to be visiting, we should be supporting those who spiritually feed us as well as the other believers in our community and all around the world as God moves on our hearts. Don't give compulsively, it says in chapter 9, verse 7, but give as according to your own heart. What God has spoken to you, obey him. Don't give motivated by shame. Don't give motivated by a desire to get rich. No, give out of obedience and do it cheerfully and watch as the Lord blesses you and bless us he does. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for being on this journey with me. We'll see you tomorrow. And for those of you who are interested, if you are feeling stuck relationally, physically, professionally, and you need a little help getting to the destination you're searching for, reach out to me through thebibleinorder.com forward slash coaching. It would be my honor to help you get to where you want to be.